gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, a podcast about taking extremely aggressive shortcuts up the corporate ladder. This week, we're heading up to Scotland for a story of murder, sorcery, and the need for good laundry services in Macbeth. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 31, All Hail Macdeath. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. (laughs) James, would you care to give us a plot summary of this most bloody story? The blasted heathens. Excuse me. (laughs) Blasted heathens. (laughs) It could could apply. It could apply. It could apply. The blasted heaths of the medieval highlands are racked by black magic, war, and stormy weather, as the Scottish play, which opens with three witches, known as the Weird Sisters, stepping out amid thunder and the clamor of battle. They plan to intercept the valiant Lord Macbeth, who is cleaving the realm's enemies from, quote, the knave to the chops, end quote, nearby with his sword, which smokes with bloody execution. The cause of this gore? The rebellion of Macdonwald, who has turned against King Duncan with the aid of Norwegian lords and Irish mercenaries. Duncan, near the clamor of the fighting, is delighted to hear reports that the unseen Macbeth and his friend Banquo have killed the traitor and beheaded him. In the wake of the slaughter, Macbeth and Banquo wander onto the stage for the first time, exhausted and flush with victory, only to encounter the witches. The witches hail Macbeth as the Thane of Glamis, his current title, Thane of Cawdor, a title held by one of the rebels, and, quote, king hereafter, end quote. And they hail Banquo as the father of future kings, though not a future king himself. When the witches vanish, another noble comes upon them and congratulates Macbeth. Duncan has named him the new Thane of Cawdor as a reward for his efforts, watering the seed of Macbeth's ambition. Macbeth, Banquo, and the king ride to spend the night at Macbeth's castle in Inverness, with Macbeth writing his wife and riding ahead to tell her of the witch's prophecies. The ambitious and forthright Lady Macbeth encourages him to seize this opportunity to kill Duncan and become king, though Macbeth has doubts, which leads her to basically tell him to man up. They ultimately plan to get Duncan's guards blackout drunk and slip into the chamber to murder Duncan while he sleeps. That night, Macbeth approaches Duncan's chamber. He first encounters Banquo, who is filled with feelings of foreboding and is out with his son. And then, after Banquo leaves, Macbeth sees a blood-soaked dagger hovering before him, which rocks him to his core. Lady Macbeth, however, spurs him onward. Macbeth kills Duncan, but leaves the guard's daggers behind and cannot bear to go back into the room. Leading his wife to take action, she grabs the blades and plants them on the drunken men, framing them. The next morning, Macduff, a noble loyal to Duncan, discovers the king's body, and Macbeth, in a feigned fit of rage, kills the two guardsmen in revenge. This turn of events does not reassure Duncan's sons, Malcolm and Donalbane, who fear that they might be killed next and decide to flee. This makes them suspects in Duncan's demise and leads to Macbeth's election by the other thanes as king, a turn of events that makes Banquo suspicious and fearful, knowing that the weird sister's prophecy of his descendants rising to the throne makes him a threat to the Macbeths. Macbeth, meanwhile, no fool, resolves to have Banquo and his son Fleance murdered and invites them to a banquet after his coronation. After they ride out, Macbeth sends out assassins who ambush Banquo and Fleance. Banquo is murdered, but Fleance escapes in the chaos. At the banquet, meanwhile, Macbeth steps into the hall only to see the ghost of his murdered friend in his seat. Since only he can see the ghost, his reactions lead to a scene which Lady Macbeth tries to defuse unconvincingly for the guests before sending them away. Macbeth, seeking guidance, seeks out the witches once more. The witches conjure three spirits in the wilderness, a disembodied head in a helmet, which tells him to beware Macduff, a child covered in blood who tells him that no man born of woman will harm him, and a crowned child bearing a tree, who tells him that he will be safe until Great Burnham Wood walks to Dunsinane Hill, the site of one of Macbeth's castles. This is all something of a relief to Macbeth, since the last two prophecies seem improbable, to say the least, and Macduff can be killed easily enough. Disturbingly, though, the witches also show him that Banquo's sons will reign in Scotland. The witches vanish, only for Macbeth to learn from one of his men that Macduff has fled to England to seek out Malcolm. This is enough for Macbeth, who orders Macduff's wife, children, and servants to be murdered, 
a bloodbath we see in graphic detail. Shortly thereafter, we see evidence that the butchery has taken a toll. The Macbeths are starting to unravel, acquiring reputations as tyrants and murderers outside the castle and as deranged and unwell people within it. Lady Macbeth sleeps walk at night, trying to wash away imagined blood in her hands, utterly mad. In England, Macduff meets with Malcolm and tries to convince him to challenge Macbeth and assume his place on the throne, which Malcolm initially seems reluctant to do due to his supposed failings, but ultimately he reveals he was merely testing Macduff's sincerity and agrees. Before they can leave to raise an army and march north, though, an anguished Macduff learns of his family's murder. When Malcolm and Macduff's army arrives in Scotland, their force grows with thanes who switch sides in response to Macbeth's madness and tyranny. They prepare to besiege Dunsinade Castle and cut down branches from Burnham Wood to disguise their numbers as they approach for the final assault on Macbeth's fortified position. Inside the castle, Macbeth receives word that Lady Macbeth has committed suicide and sinks into a nihilistic soliloquy, lamenting that life is a tale of sound and fury told by an idiot signifying nothing, much like this podcast. The bleakness compounds when Macbeth learns that the trees of Burnham Wood are on the move. Nonetheless, he refuses to give and resolves to stand his ground. Macbeth fights well, believing himself to be invincible since every man is born of woman. He cuts down the son of one of his enemies in battle, only to come across a righteous Macduff. Macbeth boasts that he cannot be killed due to the prophecy, only for Macduff to reveal that he was removed from his mother's womb via emergency C-section. Macbeth refuses to yield even though he recognizes that he is doomed. Macduff lays on and kills him, bringing his head to Malcolm, who is anointed king, declares that all thanes shall henceforth be known as earls in the English fashion, and invites everyone to scone to see him crowned. And that, Will, is the plot of this very dark Scottish play that shall remain nameless. Well, James, screw your courage to the sticking place, because I think we have to press on and discuss this most bloody work. Yes, fair Um, enough, fair enough. Um, And Will, so where I wanted to start with this one, if you don't mind, if I may, I think particularly recently, but I think also going back over the course of our plays, relationships between men and women in Shakespeare, in the comedies, like we we don't really see how the relationships work out in the comedies for the most part. You get up to the point of marriage and that's where the plot takes you. In terms of couples that we've seen, mostly we've seen pretty dysfunctional couples. I mean, we just did Othello. And now I don't think, obviously, the point of that play is that it's a dysfunctional couple and that Othello's jealousy is activated. But also I think back to the Henry VI plays where you have Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou who are sort of at cross purposes. And similarly, there's the Duke of Gloucester and his wife, and they're not in sync at all. This play is interesting, I think, because to my mind, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth kind of represent what I think in today's world we would refer to as a power couple. Obviously, they're devoting themselves to extremely unsavory ends. But at the same time, I was reading this play and I was like, this is actually kind of a portrait of a very successful marriage. And I don't mean a successful marriage necessarily in the sense of like a loving marriage. Although maybe it is and maybe it's not. I, I, I don't I personally don't think we like get enough access to their romantic life to be able to say that. But it is clearly a mutually supportive relationship and a mutually like reinforcing relationship in terms of how they help each other in the world. W- what do you think about that? Uh, and what do you think that that says about kind of the tragedy of the play and and the ends to which they're devoting themselves. Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. I think that this actually is both a portrait of a successful couple, power couple, as you said. I also think it's a depiction of a loving relationship in a way. And I think of this particularly with Lady Macbeth, who gets remembered as sort of goading her husband on, and she definitely does do that. But she has some wonderful lines here which show her really wanting the best for her husband and wanting him to live up to his potential, which I think is really interesting. Glamis thou art, and Cawdor, and shalt be what thou art promised. Yet I do fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great, art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. In that 
set of lines, I think you can really see that Lady Macbeth knows her husband very well, knows his weaknesses, and even in this case, these are weaknesses that are not necessarily bad things about him, but they're holding him back from being the man that she knows he can be. And in that sense, it's a power couple thing, but it's also a spouse or partner that really can see the potential in the other person that knows them so well that they see what might be inhibiting them from becoming, in this case, I mean, he gets through it through murder and uh, insanity follows in its wake, but you do get the sense that she wants the best for him uh, and wants him to be the best he can be. They just have a very, very skewed sense of what the best thing that they can be is, right? Yes, yes. I mean, let me build on that too, Will. I think I think everything you're saying is true. And I think that probably is a defining characteristic of a successful and supportive relationship. But also, Lady Macbeth knows how to... Like, it's not just that she knows him and believes in him, right? She also knows how to influence him and how to get him to live up to those standards. There's this great speech where she says, you know, you know, this is where Macbeth is sort of wavering about whether or not he's going to kill Duncan. And she says... Was a hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since? And wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? Huh? From this time, such I account thy love. Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valour as thou art in desire? Wouldst thou have that which thou esteems the ornament of life, and live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would, like the poor cat of the adage? So, I think it's more than just the sentiment. Right. I think also what we're seeing here is that part of the successful couple is knowing how to influence the behavior and help the other person be the thing that they should be. Right. And want to be. I mean, I think that there's one thing that's really perceptive about Lady Macbeth is she actually knows that Macbeth wants the throne. And this is fairly clear early on. I mean, even in um, in Act One, he says, "Stars hide your fires. Let not light see my black and deep desires." It doesn't really take all that much to push Macbeth into fantasizing about the throne. I mean, so much so that you really have to ask whether this isn't something that they've discussed before or certainly thought about before in some fashion yeah and we can sort of get into that but i think in the world of the play it sort of connects with their relationship this is a world in which ambition and violence and usurpation are all intimately tied to being a man being a powerful and assertive person and being valued in the world in which they live which is you know it's no accident that macbeth is first hailed while he's in that very visceral image, uh, splitting people from the nave to the chops, you know, from the groin to the mouth, you know, he's mm-hmm. slicing people left and right. And that so much of the acclaim, and even the way Macduff later on talks about being a man, you know, he has to feel the pain of the loss of his wife and children, but also must avenge them. And that's something Malcolm is, is telling me has to do. So it's all very tied together in that she understands not only his specific psychology and desires uh but as you say understands how to motivate to get him there but one little interesting factoid that i came across uh, while reading about the source material for this play incidentally in the source material in hollandshed which shakespeare is drawing on macbeth actually is a pretty good cause to want to kill duncan unlike in the play to a certain extent because lady macbeth was actually the closest in the line of succession in this historical account of the Scottish crown. And Macbeth was supposed to be Lord Protector or Regent, and Duncan kind of usurped them in mm-hmm. the line of succession. So it's actually really interesting because in a sense, right, all of that is chopped out to make the usurpation of Duncan that much more bloody and odious. And yet there is this sort of uncomfortable fact that usurpation seems to be more the norm than not 
even in the context of this play. And Lady Macbeth, in in the sort of historical case, had good reason to want to see Duncan replaced. So that's just kind of an interesting thing lurking in the background here. Well, so all of that is is removed, but there's sort of this core of ambition that seems very common right. in the world. Well, so I'm very, as you know, Will, skeptical of, or not skeptical of exactly, but hesitant about bringing in like extra textual elements to the discussion. Not because it's not relevant, but because I think Shakespeare obviously made the choices that he made and put onto the page what he put, you know, for his own thematic goals, right? That being said, I think the point that you make about the Holinshed is interesting, and I, it, it sort of plays into another question I had about this relationship dynamic, which is, it seems on the page that this is all about Macbeth's position. Yes, it's the power couple, but it's the power couple that is ultimately in the service of Macbeth's personal advancement. What was interesting about that to me, and what I kind of wanted to unpack with you a little bit, though, is that at the same time, it seems like part of what makes them successful is that they view it as their collective success. Yes. Right? It's like they're they're a unit advancing this goal. It's not like like she's probably not an equal partner exactly because I don't think there was such a thing as an equal partnership in 13th century Scotland or whenever this is taking place. But clearly they both view their relationship and their unit as the thing that they're advancing, not just Macbeth's personal claim. And I think what you just, you know, that historical context that you just brought in is interesting because in that context, it is Macbeth advancing his own ambition, but it's also advancing his ambition in defense of Lady Macbeth's claim to the throne, which sort of, I think, further integrates what that unit is. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think that it's not just that they want what's best for each other. It's that their successes are each other's successes, in a sense. I mean, in in a lot of ways, there's something that's very... um, egalitarian this may be one of the most egalitarian marriages that we see in all of shakespeare maybe it's the most honestly Mm -hmm. i mean yes of course like 13th century scotland is not you know 21st century america or or wherever but i do think that it is a much more interesting portrait especially for the first two acts because once you get past the murder of duncan and to some extent lady Macbeth trying to do some damage control at the banquet when Macbeth has this breakdown after Banquo is murdered. She sort of becomes less important. She's not around for as much of the scheming. She's going through a psychological crisis of her own when she finally steps back into the frame. But for those first two acts, I think you get some really powerful, great scenes between the two of them. It has a different quality than a lot of the male-female relationships we have where... The egalitarian nature is only done under false pretenses, where the woman is dressed as a man, Mm -hmm. or there's some unnatural thing that's being injected into the play. This just presents them sort of in their natural state. And even him writing to his wife and then riding off to talk to her, there's a level of intimacy that he has with her that goes beyond just... Like, he talks to Banquo, right? And they're sort of processing the witch's prophecies. But he doesn't have anything like the shared confidence that he has with his wife, which is is quite interesting. Let's observe, Will, that if Othello and Desdemona had the kind of intimacy and communication that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth have, there's no way that Desdemona would end up dead. Or that either of them would end up dead. (laughs) Right. Right. So, now, that being said, I do think we need to throw the obvious problematic thing into this right which is that ultimately this very positive or you know this relationship that we have been talking very positively about is being directed towards extremely nefarious ends in this play let's leave the historical context out of it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. but like in shakespeare's world macbeth is committing regicide then he's murdering a couple of completely innocent squires or something to cover up his initial crime, and then he's murdering Macduff's family when Macduff flees, uh, and apparently he's acting as a tyrant throughout the kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. So I just I think it makes this sort of positive view of the relationship a little bit more difficult to sustain. Yes, well, I don't think it's a condemnation necessarily of the. I mean, I think that there's obviously the reading of this where Lady Macbeth is the agent 
or driver of Macbeth's bad behavior. And she's certainly an enabler. There's no question about that. And there are times where she's probably driving things forward. But yeah, but Macbeth, you know, Macbeth is ready to be tempted. Yeah, it's right? a, if, I don't, she's pushing on an open door. She, you know, she that's, is not, it's not like, a, she does not incept him with this idea. No, right? No, this is not an Iago Othello situation. I mean, almost from the jump, he's ready to sort of see where these prophecies lead, for sure. I mean, she enables him. She helps it happen. I think one thing that's interesting about that is they sort of commit to it fully. We've seen some other kings that refuse to follow through. I mean, in fact, right, Cassius and um, Brutus, right, they refuse to kill Mark Antony and Julius Caesar. There's no such qualms on the part of the Macbeths, right? Uh, Macbeth has this wonderful line he says to his wife, things bad begun make strong themselves by ill. And he's basically saying, well, if we're going to commit these bloody crimes, there's no half measures. We're going all the way and we'll kill everybody that we need to kill to secure our position. Yeah, well, this I think this might lead us into our next topic because I, I think that's true. And it's one thing that I really admire about this play is that unlike in some of the other plays that we've read, Macbeth goes into this with completely open eyes, right? There's that very famous speech that begins, you know, if it were done, when tis done, then for well, it were done quickly. And, and I think when we hear that line without reading the full soliloquy, you know, you sort of think that he's just saying, well, if I'm going to do it, I should do it soon. But in fact, if you read that full speech, which I think we should just play the whole thing, Will, if it were done, when it is done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here. But here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. That in these cases we still have judgment here, that we but teach bloody instructions which, being taught, return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poisoned chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust. First, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed. Then, as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity, like a naked newborn babe, striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim, horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye that tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which o'erleaps itself and falls or the other. What he's really saying is, if it could be done so that all I do is kill Duncan and I become king, then great, then I should do it right away. But inevitably what's going to happen is that he's very aware that killing Duncan is going to set into motion a sequence of events that he kind of isn't going to have control over. Right? He says, but in these cases, we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instructions, which being taught return to plague the inventor. So it's not like he doesn't know that this is not going to be a walk in the park. But right. he decides to do it anyways. Right. And that clear-eyedness is, I think, very unusual up to this point in Shakespeare. Yes. I think the other person who has it to a certain degree is Richard III. But the difference is Richard III doesn't really feel any significant guilt over his actions. And the Macbeths do. And I think that's the part that they don't entirely anticipate that this is going to become not just the road to their elevation and is going to involve cracking a few eggs to make some omelets. It's that they never can really get away from 
uh, what they've done. And you mm-hmm. have little bits of foreshadowing. I mean, obviously you have the bloody dagger, the phantom, you know, hovering in front of Macbeth. You have Lady Macbeth saying, if Duncan, if the sleeping Duncan had not reminded her of her father, she would have done it. There are all these moments where sort of guilt intrudes and it ultimately drives Lady Macbeth insane. Macbeth, you get little less of a sense of that, but it's still present. And you really have the, they feel the contradiction. Richard never had any problem presenting himself as something other than what he was. But in fact, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, to go back to the witches, one of their first comments, fair is foul and foul is fair. They present themselves you know, in a way, especially in the first few acts of the play, that is good to the world, but privately they know the truth, that they're plotting these bloody murders, and in fact they're doing villainous deeds, and they're comfortable with that, but they're not really comfortable after the fact, once they've sort of set down the road. They can't get away from it, they feel the guilt, they're still committed to the path, and that's a very interesting situation, because it's it's a really powerful evocation of guilt, not just commitment to villainy yeah i mean we've seen little snippets of guilt as a subject in other plays i mean obviously you know othello's death speech at the end of othello has some of that there we talked a little bit about the idea of regret in richard the third between clarence and edward but it didn't have the same valence right there was like regret that things didn't turn out the way that they imagined but it wasn't guilt really This play is much more focused on the subject of reckoning with your wrongs. And I think actually, Will, that there's a really fascinating to me divergence between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth here, Mm. where, you know, at the beginning of the play, it's Macbeth who's more worried or more, you know, has more qualms, or at least probably because he's the one who's ultimately going to have to do the deed. And she's the one who's taking the, like, do it, do it, do it. Like, are you a man? Mm-hmm. You have to go ahead with this. But over the course of the play, they take these very divergent paths where Lady Macbeth essentially has a nervous breakdown, right? That's the famous out damn spot scene. There's this amazing uh, line from the doctor who's treating her. He says, unnatural deeds do breed unnatural troubles. Infected minds to their death pillows will discharge their secrets. More needs she the divine than the physician. God, God, forgive us all, look after her, remove from her the means of all annoyance, and still keep eyes upon her. So she is overcome by her guilt, whereas Macbeth, it seems, is really hardened. You know, where he goes from having these qualms, it's like as soon as he kills Duncan, he, he flips into this much more pragmatic and unsentimental person, where like now that he's done it, now that he's done the deed, he's fully committed. Right, and that's where you get the, okay, now I'm going to kill the guards, now I'm going to kill Banquo and Fleance, now I'm going to kill Macduff's family. And he almost, he almost seems to become, it's not that he loses the sense of guilt, maybe. It's like he, he hardens himself against it. And I think that maybe is what leads to his nihilism, ultimately, at the end of the play, right, with the out-out brief candle soliloquy. Right. Right. Well, I think there's probably a few things going on there. I mean, I, I think that with the ghost of Banquo, you have another example of his guilt being manifested externally in some way, that he's sort of grappling with that. But I agree, he hardens himself. And I think um, in the manner of how power often works in the real world, when you make difficult and unpleasant and uh, sometimes immoral decisions or decisions that have like vast moral consequences, you have to erect some sort of psychological barrier to keep going between that and your conscience. I don't mean that in all cases, but in this case, right, he's clearly become comfortable ordering the murder of innocent people. It may not necessarily be something that he loves doing or takes uh, sadistic pleasure in, but he has no problem with it at all. Well, you know, there's the... something extremely pragmatic about it, right? That's, yes. that's, I think, maybe what I find interesting about it is he's so pragmatic, right? He says, to be thus is nothing but to be safely thus. And, and uh, like, I, I'm not saying this to excuse Macbeth's actions, right? But there's, he's taking this incredibly practical approach to it which is, you know, well, 
they said that Banquo's descendants are going to be kings. That sort of suggests that he's a threat to me, so I got to kill him. I just got to I just got to do it. It's sort of like a fruit of the poisonous tree situation, right? Like he's he's behaving extremely rationally, but right. from a basis of having done a very very horrible deed that is like spinning out on him. Yes. Well, that that's why I love that line, things bad begun make strong themselves by ill. It's a sort of recognition of that. Where it's somewhat interesting is I think the nihilism comes up when he receives, I think it gets its most eloquent exposition in the the out-out brief candle speech when he learns about Lady Macbeth's suicide. But before that, to go to your point of pragmatism, up until that point, when he's his second visit to the witches, he's seeking counsel because he's afraid, right? He's going to get reassurance, which he gets from the three prophecies, and then it's undone to a certain extent when he learns that Banquo's heirs will still reign on the throne in perpetuity in the future. Which again, historical side note and somewhat relevant to the play, Banquo is supposedly the ancestor of James I, who was king at the time this play was written, and who in fact, I believe, commissioned or uh, officially chartered Shakespeare and his company, so he would have seen this play. And there's a lot of little um, Easter eggs that Shakespeare put in to satisfy his his new patron. So at, at any rate, the point of that being, though, he when he goes to the witches... He's not going out of a sense of, oh man, how do I extricate myself from this bad position that I've put myself in through my misdeeds? It's, okay, tell me what I need to worry about. Who do I need to kill? What needs to happen sort of instrumentally? And I think a lot of it comes out of a place of fear in addition to guilt. He's afraid of being usurped. And again, who can blame him? Because I think this society and this universe that he's in is incredibly violent and precarious almost to the point where Macbeth is definitely deviating from the norms and established guidance, but it's not clear that he's, um, it's not clear that he's a full standard deviation away from the norms of this universe that he inhabits. Will, I know you have what I view as an extraordinarily hot take about the politics of this play. Do you want to just take two minutes to do a quick politics corner and expand that theory? Sure. So there's a couple things that are going on here that I think are very interesting about kingship and legitimacy and divine right. And I'm not saying that Shakespeare is approaching this as a whole manifesto, let alone in a play that's going to be uh, performed for the king, right? But one of the things that's interesting about the context of the play and the way it's written is that usurpation and rebellion seems to be on almost everybody's minds continuously throughout this. Obviously, the play opens with a rebellion from MacDonwald, who is put down by Macbeth at Duncan's behest. Then you have these prophecies. Banquo does not go and dime Macbeth out to Duncan or to Macduff and Malcolm once he suspects that Macbeth is the murderer, which we have pretty strong indications that he he suspects Macbeth's ambition. Let me interrupt you here, Will, quickly, because I think this is a really interesting point to make, though we don't need to talk about it, is I think we're used to thinking about this play and thinking of Banquo as this like noble victim of Macbeth. Mm. Banquo's pretty clearly got some ambitions of his own, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. And it's not like... Macduff or many of the other people are running to grab Malcolm and Donalbane saying, don't run off. You guys are actually the legitimate heirs to the throne. And Macbeth is more or less elected by the other thanes, right? Like that's kind of how their model works for selecting the next leader. Obviously, it's a grave sin to kill a king, but it's not so grave that nobody's willing to- Tell that to your bro Cromwell, Will. Yeah, yeah. It's a grave sin, but I think that it's clearly honored more in the breach than the observance Mm -hmm. in the universe of this play. And I think there's probably a message here, right? Especially at the end, this is sort of a historical note, but when Malcolm emerges and says, okay, all you Thanes, we're going to call you earls now because that's what they do in England— That's an effort, I think, maybe by Shakespeare to say, we have this new Scottish king in our time in Jacobian England. We have James. And we're going to sort of civilize and sort of merge these two kingdoms in a way that shores up the the civilized legitimacy of the Stuart dynasty 
by sort of switching from this chaotic, extremely violent world of Scottish kingship to the somewhat more enlightened and controlled version of English kingship. But we also know from all the other plays that Shakespeare's written that earls are no great exemplars of loyalty or rectitude either. So it's an interesting tack for him to take in a way because it's not like he's trying to undermine or critique the institution of monarchy per se. I think he's simply actually somewhat boldly saying, even in portraying Banquo, James I's ancestor, supposedly, he's laying this out and sort of saying, you know, ambition and um, and usurpation are kind of part of the game of kings. It's not an endorsement of that, but I do think that it's hanging out there. So that's my hot take is that this is actually kind of an astonishing play in that it's not really focused on completely shoring up the legitimacy, even of the patron, that he's writing it and performing it for. I mean, Will, I have to take the opposite take, or not opposite exactly, but I'm going to have to push back on this, uh, this stunningly hot take, because to me, this play is very much in continuance with themes we've seen in many of Shakespeare's plays, and not just the English plays. I mean, also in a play like Julius Caesar, right, where Shakespeare's main argument in these kinds of plays seems more to be that, like, the consequences of bloody regime change are invariably worse than being under the previous regime. So I agree that that is a prominent theme. I don't think that's a contradiction to what I'm saying. I just think that this is, in a sense, I think what's going on here is that these notions of legitimacy and divine right and so forth are kind of a useful fiction in Shakespeare's portrayal. Like, they're good for stability, but they're not necessarily really taken all that seriously by most people in power. I think that's sort of the depiction that he's going for, which is the consequences and civil war are terrible, and usually usurpation and bloody regime chains, as you just articulated, produce more sadness and chaos than the alternative. Yeah, I mean, he, frankly, Shakespeare sometimes, and look, I don't want to, I don't want to advance this argument too strongly, because I think it's a little bit attenuated, and there's a lot that you could find to argue against this as well. But there are times reading the plays where I go, like, Shakespeare's like an autocrat. Shakespeare wants, you know, doesn't want a tyrant, but he does want an autocrat, right? He wants a Henry V. He wants a Caesar. You know, he doesn't want a Henry VI. And it can have that feeling sometimes that in his mind, you have to have that strong central despot, basically, in order to prevent this kind of thing from happening. And I mean, you said it yourself, Will. I mean, Duncan comes across as being a bit of a weak king. And that's what ends up enabling Macbeth to yeah. succeed. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think we've a little bit gone out on a reservation here. and we No, should... no, I, I actually think it's a pretty interesting question, right? Because Macbeth's tyranny is talked about by the other characters. I mean, I think Shakespeare does not want tyrants, right? And even with the Caesar case, it's an interesting question, right? Because that's the debate that's at the heart of whether it's legitimate or not to take out Caesar uh, mm-hmm. for Brutus and so forth. But I think that what he wants is a strong king, whether you know you want to define that as an autocrat or not. He wants, if you're taking Henry V as an imperfect, but maybe about as good as you're going to get example of kingship, he wants a king. Side note, Will, is Vincentio actually the best, the best <laughs> ruler we have in, in all of Shakespeare? Mm. We, we should have talked about this as measure for measure. It just occurred to me blisteringly blisteringly hot take james might be the hottest take ever uttered on this might be might be it's like nuclear grade (laughs) stuff it's like chernobyl hot i I was just gonna say i think what can we say using the example of henry v and then comparing him to people like macbeth or even you know since we're talking about macbeth let's talk about malcolm as well i think that he clearly wants rulers that have some facility with power that aren't feckless and foolish and aren't Henry VI. He also doesn't want somebody that's uh, Machiavellian and evil to the point of just diabolical and immoral behavior, the sort of Richard III and, you know, arguably Macbeth, though Macbeth is less 
sort of a Mephistoclean kind of figure compared to, Mm -hmm. he's much more human in a way than Richard III is. But he also wants somebody that's in touch with the people, but not subject to the mob. And so he's got all of these criteria, and it's very interesting to watch that unfold. I think what's funny about this play, too, is you turn to Malcolm, and Malcolm, I would posit, has a little bit of Macbeth in him too Mm -hmm. right so does Macduff to an extent though Macduff is presented perhaps as the most selfless character out of all of them and the least openly ambitious but you have that great scene which is kind of an interesting read between Macduff and Malcolm and Macduff making entreaties to get Malcolm to raise an army and go back and Malcolm goes into this whole spiel about how he's not actually a good person you know he's got rapacious lust and he's very violent and then he ultimately says, oh, just kidding, JK guys, I'm actually, I was just testing you. You do get the sense that the world in which these guys are formed, where violence is so related to being powerful and being a man, that it's very hard to find the ideal king or the person that's ideally right. suited to rule. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to your point about legitimacy and, you know, the useful fiction of divine right, Will, as I'm thinking back on it and incorporating this play into the matrix of it, it does seem like like legitimate succession, father to son, seems in his mind to be the most stable kind of succession. And like Henry VI, of course, is a little bit of a different case, or not a different case, but he's so young and then he ends up being so ineffective. And of course, having an ineffective king is in a way just as bad as having an illegitimate king. But what's happening with Macbeth is the same thing that happens with Richard III, it's the same thing that happens with Henry IV, right, where the question of legitimacy or, like, having an illegitimate succession or something that at least can be portrayed as an illegitimate succession is very destabilizing. Whereas, like, the Henry V thing, obviously you and I know that Henry V is coming out of the Henry IV line and is therefore a little bit suspect if you're taking the purely legal perspective. Right. But paradigmatically, if you are random, you know, the, you know, the Teamsters that we saw in Henry IV one and you see the succession go from Henry IV to his son, Henry V, that seems much more legit than seeing Henry IV usurp Richard II. Right. Yes. Yes. Though I think there is a little bit of a dice roll quality, right, to hereditary monarchy. Oh, for, uh, for I, sure. And- for sure. And you've got the Richard II example, and you've got the Henry VI example. So, again, the qualification I'd make is what you want is a well-educated prince, a prince who's prepared and wise and ready to lead. And I think if you're looking just purely at his portraits of sovereigns, that's a much rarer situation than one might suppose. Now, that's not to say that he's envisioning some other way of society ordering itself and recommending it, let alone recommending it. It's just to say that I think he, um, you know, he's he's somebody that observes politics with a very brutally realistic view of power, I think, yes, and disorder for sure. and the consequences thereof. And he sort of recognizes that I think monarchy is no picnic necessarily, and it doesn't always produce good results, but it's not always clear that... Um, you know, it produces the worst results either. There are worse things, such as like a succession of just endless civil wars, in his view, that come from usurpation. And I think there's the tension. There's a tension in that, because how much of that comes out of different claims to legitimacy and hereditary rule. So anyway, there's a lot going on there. I think there's a fascinating sort of political through line that actually is more present in Macbeth than I necessarily thought. Because in some ways, it's a very personal play because of the focus on guilt and appearances and deception and murder and its sort of personal consequences you don't really see his tyranny in the same way no not at all it's it's reported to us it's reported to us you see him murder people which obviously is tyrannical and sort of indiscriminate almost in the way it's carried out but you i almost feel like there's a missing scene here where you want to see the depredations like you almost need to have that battlefield scene in Henry VI, part two or part three, where the father comes across the son that he killed in battle and vice versa, right, from the two sides. And it's just total moral chaos. 
you almost want to see something along those lines showing Macbeth's yeah. tyranny and inversion of the moral order of Yeah, I I think I think Shakespeare tries to give it to us with this, you know, that scene between I think it's Ross and Angus and Angus says now does he feel his secret murders sticking on his hands? Now minutely revolts, upbraid his faith breach. Those he commands move only in command, nothing in love. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it seems like he's trying to build out the world. But this is a short play, Will. Yeah. You know, it's not like Henry IV, where it's long and broad, you know, and you're yes. getting this cross-section society, and you're really seeing what's happening also on the level of the people, right? And you're sort of alternating between the quarters of power and the common man to some degree. Absolutely. In this fact, play I don't really... is... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I don't even think that there are really many commoners per se in this at all, right? There are some nameless stewards. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, it's, I, it's I just... agree. But that actually, James, that brings us, I think, to our third topic, which is this play, I think, pound for pound. I mean, it's the shortest of the tragedies, but pound for pound, line for line, it has some of the most famous lines and speeches in all of Shakespeare, and I think justifiably so. And I know we wanted to talk a little bit about the language here, but um, is there sort of a speech or set of passages that really jump out to you as being exceptional in this play that's just chock full of great lines and, and poetic language? Well, I'll say for me, the one, you know, the one speech that really made me stop and take a breath was the out, out, brief candle speech. Mm-hmm which maybe we'll play it here. Tomorrow. And tomorrow. And tomorrow. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays of lighted fools away to dusty death. Out. Out. Brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then he's heard no more. Here's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. I'm trying to express or think of why. I guess it's, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Mm. You know, where all of a sudden you have this incredibly bleak philosophy getting expounded to you. Mm. And I guess maybe part of what's striking about it to me is just how dark that vision is that he has. Mm -hmm. But I think it also contextually makes sense within his psychology, right? It's it's not hard to understand or maybe, sorry, I mean, I don't want to, obviously I don't want to claim that I understand Macbeth, right? It's not hard for me to draw a line from where Macbeth starts at the beginning of the play to him making that speech right before he dies. Mm. And I think also that in the same way that some of those amazing speeches in Hamlet are both emotional and evocative of Hamlet's mindset, but are also very, very profound in expressing very deep philosophical human questions. Mm-hmm. I Look, as someone who has dabbled a lot with nihilism myself, I feel like this speech of Macbeth's is a very perfect summation of a certain way of looking at the world and a way of looking at the world that you may or may not like, but that I think it's difficult not to grapple with, particularly when you're in darker periods of your life. Mm. What about you? Is there a particular passage that stuck out to you? Well, I think that's the big one. And I think it actually may be line for line, the best thing Shakespeare has written that we've Whoa, across. whoa. Just dropping a bomb in this conversation. It might be. Holy shit. I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's. I'm glad I would stay down for that one. I mean, you know, we're looking at what, what is that? Five, six, seven. That's 11, basically for all intents and purposes, that's like 11 lines. And 
it's like to be or not to be, but it's super concentrated, which is actually how I describe this play as a whole, to, almost to its detriment, because I think it could use one or two more scenes to flesh things out and give it some space to breathe. But this is incredibly intense, this speech. The language is amazing. It can be performed in so many different ways, but all with the final impact of Shakespeare's words, what he's articulating mm-hmm. here, which is kind of the the meaninglessness of all of this striving, the temporality, you know, the shortness of life, and the bitterness that can arrive from that, the sort of nihilistic impulse. And I think it's just a beautifully written speech, and it has no fat in it whatsoever. So in that sense, I agree. I mean, I think there's a lot of great stuff here. Obviously, we've quoted from a bunch of it. I think that there's great evocative images, particularly Lady Macbeth early on in her back and forth with Macbeth, sort of convincing him to go forward, talking about dashing the brains of a babe out on a wall. She's uh, willing to go all out. Uh, And I think you just have great, great lines that just litter this play in pretty amazing ways. Uh, This is not one where I feel like there's a lot of um, a lot of chaff in the work. Yeah, the lines are short in this one, Will, in an interesting way, because I think, I mean, of course, yeah, there there are great speeches and there are some a few longer speeches, but there's a lot of patter, a lot of back and forth in this. And there's a lot of very effective, short speeches. And it moves. It moves along. There is a force and drive to the plot of this that I think sometimes gets lost in the longer plays where you get the sense there's there's a lot of filler and you need to do lots of things. This is definitely the easiest play of the ones that we've read to read, in my view. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just because of the length, but I think it has these great scenes of pattern and dialogue filled with action. There's a propulsive and dark force at the core of it. It's a really well-crafted, just truly excellent, excellent play in my view. Well, Will, since it sounds like this is where we need to move into our rankings here, because it sounds like you might have some some strong feelings about where Macbeth needs to fit in your rankings. So, Will, where do you place this? So, despite that, I, I think I'm going to put it at two, despite my ode to its excellence. It's a toss-up for me between this and Hamlet. Hamlet, I think, breathes a little bit more. I think that the character's partially because you spend more time with them, partially because there's so much language in it. I think you get to know them in different ways. And I do think that there's some missing, there's a missing scene or two in Macbeth that I think would truly make it triumphant in terms of leading the plot to be a little bit more satisfying. I think this is the best play in terms of the writing, the plotting, the thematic unity, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that it overtakes Hamlet as a play that, like this one sticks with me and you know we talked about Othello as having this like emotional valence that's really powerful I think in some ways this one is the purest distillation of kind of theme and matching it with great language but I don't know that it's quite as successful as Hamlet I'm really 50 50 on that but I'm gonna put it at two it's sort of the divide between a it's like it's sort of the divide between a movie that's too big but great mm-hmm. and a movie that is like maybe more limited in scope but perfect yes um, i think or, this I mean, is... that, that could go for any work of art i guess but in in my mind that's just like a way that i think about movies sometimes is like mm-hmm. this movie is imperfect but amazing and just truly a great movie or has greatness like has a quality of greatness versus movies that are like this movie is perfectly made. And sometimes those things are the same, but very rarely are they the same. Mm. Anyway, that would be the way that I would think about what you're saying right now. Yes. I mean, so this is a very close number two, almost number one. I really wrestled with it. It's definitely dark masterpiece, but I think it's going to be a two. Maybe I'll come to regret that, maybe not, but I feel pretty good about putting it a two right now. And who are you going to anoint the MVP of Macbeth, Will? Oh, boy. Tough one, but I'm going to go with Macbeth. All right. I have more complicated feelings about this play than you do. This play did not hit me in the way some of the other plays have hit me. 
I agree with you on the construction of it. I think your point about it missing a couple scenes may actually get to the core of my slight ambivalence in that I like the play. I think it is thematically very, very, very tight, but it just didn't quite hit me in the way that an Othello does. Mm -hmm. And similarly, it doesn't have, it doesn't entertain me in the way that Julius Caesar does, for Mm -hmm. instance. So I think looking at my list, it's interesting actually, looking at my list, I'm like, oh, I, I didn't expect to have it be this easy for me, but basically looking at this list, it's immediately I'm like, oh, it's number six. It's between Julius Caesar and Richard III. It's clearly better than Richard III, and it's clearly not in my top five. So yeah, I'm going with number six. It's going to slot between Julius Caesar and Richard III. And since you made Macbeth the MVP, I think that means that I will go with Lady Macbeth, who I think is, I I think you could make a strong argument for for both characters. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think it makes sense to have both of them represented in our rankings. Yeah, no, I, I agree. One more thought just on your ranking. I almost feel like this is Shakespeare's best poem in a way. Interesting. Okay, Um, say more. It's almost approached... There's definitely... Obviously, this is a great play. It's a great work of drama. This is one where I'm drawn as much to the language and thematic resonance. I mean, obviously, to see it on stage, it becomes its own animal. This is one that... I think you can watch it on the stage. I think it's also one you can read and engage with and sort of find extra resonance in the language. Because that's sort of what does it for me in some ways, is I think this has a lot of the best stuff that Shakespeare has written that we've come across, and more of it in a shorter mm-hmm. span than a lot of the others, to include Hamlet. I just think that it's it's hard to say. So much depends on the performance, I, I suppose, you know, because it, I could see people doing this and staging this in a way that would make some of the the sort of missing scenes be taken into account. And I could see it work very well on the stage. And in fact, I think I I have seen this one a couple of times. But it works well to me as a series of poetic meditations as Mm -hmm. well as as stage spectacle. Well, Will, to your point, I think this might be a play that is better on stage than on the page. You know, because I think it is so atmospheric. Mm -hmm. And you have this whole supernatural component, the witches... You know, the world of the play, for all that he's not going into the world in the Henry the Fourth sense of the broad spectrum of society, there is a very distinct atmosphere to the play and a distinct totally. sensibility to the play. And I think that might be something that could be brought out a lot more when you see it performed or see it on screen, you, you know. And I think that could be part of it where some of the things that I'm reacting to on the page where it seems a little short and, you know, and like there's a couple things missing and it's not quite hitting me emotionally. I think if you build out that atmosphere on stage or on the screen, that might go a long way towards making up for what I'm missing on the page. Whereas I think maybe in some of the other plays, particularly in in my top five, everything is on the page and it's just a question of how it comes out on the screen. You know what Mm. I mean? But it's all there already. They're kind of more literary almost. Whereas this actually does feel a little bit more cinematic. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's definitely parts of Hamlet where it's almost too wordy and more of a philosophical disquisition. Yeah. I still find it very compelling because it's a very complex political thriller in addition to being a philosophical meditation. This one strikes me like you can... And people have done it in so many different ways ways this one strikes me that it's very amenable to being visualized in very stark ways i mean you've had everybody from kurosawa and roman polanski and you know i don't know who directed the michael fassbender version but you have you have lots of like great takes on the stark visuals here so absolutely so james do you have a non-shakespearean recommendation for our listeners this week I do, Will. A little bit, and when I say a little bit, I mean very much off the beaten track, but I've, uh, for reasons that I won't go into on this podcast, I've been doing a little bit of a David Carradine deep dive. And 
This week, I watched The Long Riders, which is a 1980 Walter Hill-directed film starring four sets of brothers. It's Carradine and his brothers, Keith and Bobby, James and Stacy Keach, Christopher and I think it's Robert Guest, and Dennis and Randy Quaid. It's about the James gang. Mm. And I was kind of expecting it, honestly, to be a little trashy. Actually, surprisingly good and entertaining. Carradine is amazing in it, great music, pretty atmospheric, like very evocative of this post-Civil War South, you know, these guys who feel kind of disenfranchised and they're going around robbing banks. And it's got some of like the Wild Bunch feel of revisionist Western de-glamorizing this genre. So really enjoyed it and probably not for everyone, but um, yeah, I I liked it. It's on Amazon. I would recommend it, you know, if you into David Carradine or Westerns. Excellent. Give us that recommendation one more time, James. That is The Long Riders, directed by Walter Hill. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, we'll see how one of the greatest directors of all time re-envisioned Macbeth and King Lear in medieval Japan as we discuss Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood and Ron. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Barnflies on Twitter. Drop us a line at Barnflies Podcast at Gmail.